Hey everyone, my name is Christian, and welcome back to Throughline, the podcast where we try to find the concept in non-concept albums. Throughline, in all its explorative and literary glory, literally would not exist without a couple of important players in the music commentary podcast world. First of all, we're a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the premier place for all things music lover and the home of the first HD podcast. They even have an app now to explore all of the different shows under their platform, which is super awesome, super easy to use, and totally free. It helps us out and it helps you find even more music-related and juicy content. Second, we absolutely would never have existed without the support and existence of the Audio Judo podcast, talking about albums, their history, their creation, and how they directly interacted with the lives of the hosts. It's a great way to get new music recommendations that come from a place of real empathic connection. So go check them out wherever you podcast. Now, today, we're talking about an album that I probably would never have heard about if not for the absolutely massive and deserved resurgence of the lead single, put forth by none other than Netflix smash hit sensation Stranger Things. This is, of course, Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill, and subsequently, the album today is then that song's album, Hounds of Love. Now, first of all, this album is absolutely not what I was expecting. Running Up That Hill is an interesting song musically, but it still felt somewhat akin to a normal 80s pop song. So I was expecting an 80s pop album. This is not that. This album is so experimental and sonically rich that it took me a solid three weeks to figure out how to even approach the album. I lost my backlog because of how dense the lyrical and musical work on this album is, and I'm incredibly excited to present my findings. Now, Hounds of Love is an album that released in 1985 under EMI Records. It reviewed astonishingly well for how experimental a lot of the album was, getting widespread glowing reviews. It was her fifth studio album and had already been preceded by three of her previous four albums going platinum in the UK, so by no means was this reception a surprise, but it is notable that this is widely regarded as her masterpiece, towering over the albums from before and after. In fact, notorious website The Rolling Stone has this album at 68 in their top 500 of all time, and many Many other review sites place it similarly within their top 500s or top 100s. A massive effort by a pretty staggering amount of people, over 20 people lent their instrumental talents to the album. It ended up going two times platinum in the UK, platinum in Germany and Canada, and gold in France and the Netherlands. Not necessarily surprisingly though, this album did rather poorly in America, likely due to the 80s in that country being far more focused on dance music than it was art pop or progressive. In fact, Progressive rock and progressive music in general was on a pretty steady decline at this point. Americans also tend to not be the biggest fans of experimental music historically. The album has sold over 1.1 million copies worldwide, and this number is from 1998, with the recent surge in popularity of Running Up That Hill having over 740 million plays on Spotify alone, it's likely this number has skyrocketed in the last few months. If you don't know in general who Kate Bush is, well, she's an English art-pop artist who began her career in 1978 at only age 19, and has most recently put out an album in 2011. 11, her 10th. Over the span of this lengthy career, her last musical release being a promotional single in 2019, she has sold around 7 million albums, and some current estimates place her net worth at around $60 million. And all of this with almost never touring. She's only done one official album tour in 1979, and never again until a 22-night residency in London called Before the Dawn. It's something like she's only ever done in the ballpark of 50 shows or less. She's dabbled in numerous genres, but has mainly performed in the art, experimental, progressive pop sphere, her music eclectic and unique, and many more recent artists have quoted her as heavily influential in their work, ranging from Coldplay to Adele and more. With the recent surge, it's likely that her influence will carry even further, which is pretty spectacular to see for an artist from that time. 
Now, we have a lot to cover, so it's probably prime time to get into it. But of course, with this being the last episode before my big event, it's a good chance for us to cover the details one more time. Now, obviously, I'm talking about October 20th in Denver, Colorado, and the chance to win a VIP experience to see Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets. Exclusive merch, site-specific perks, front row seating, and a pick-shaped necklace made of Nick Mason's own symbols all await the lucky winner. It's totally free to enter, and it's a possibility for every show on the tour. That information and giveaway is at pantheonpodcasts.com slash Nick Mason, but that's not the only way to check out the show. Normal tickets are all available, and those include special boons themselves, including the opportunity to meet me, Corey from Song Facts, and Matthew from Audio Judo. Of course, the show will have merch, but I'll also have some merch. And no matter what, you'll get to see Nick Mason's Saucerful of Secrets cover a ton of classic Pink Floyd songs in an awesome Denver venue. Those tickets are at saucerfulofsecrets.com, so go grab yours now. It's coming soon, and I want to meet you all and hear you tell me what got you into Pink Floyd in the first place. Now, without any more adoing on my part, it's time to get into this episode of Throughline with a classic and arguably now current seminal work by the legendary Kate Bush, It's Hounds of Love. So you know how I said in the last episode, which of course I'm assuming all of you have listened to, you know how I said this album is walking a bit of a fine line considering it looks a lot like a concept album, but it was never explicitly stated? Yeah, so entrepreneurial little past Christian decided that the best idea for this episode was to ride the wave of popularity around the Kate Bush resurgence and cover her groundbreaking genre-defining album Hounds of Love. The same that holds that one song in Stranger Things. You know the one. What past me didn't know, however, is that Kate Bush herself is a conceptual artist. So her songs are layered and contextual, and many are based on novels or real-world events that are difficult to conceptualize over. Even littler did I know that the last seven songs on this album are already a concept album. Yep, the album largely contains an actual mini-concept. Listening to it, it's generally pretty clear that it's conceptual after song five, with many of the second half songs being wildly experimental. But I didn't know that before putting it on the schedule. Like, this is an actual part of Waking the Witch, one of the songs in this conceptual section. So, I present to all of you Throughline's first episode in a new periodic format we like to call a re-concept. In this hopefully rare show format, we'll be taking a look at albums in a little bit of a different way. As always, I'll let you all know when an episode is a re-concept episode in the beginning of the breakdown or even earlier. However, the second part is going to be different. Rather than a normal conversation, we're going to actively break down exactly what's been said and how it fits into the format, pointing to the specific elements that showcase its nature. But none of that can happen without us first looking into what I think the album is about at its face value. What connecting lines can I find between the whole album, not just the last seven songs? Well, let's get to the key to unlocking all of it, or at least the key that I used. After all, the vault of understanding has many doors with many different locks. There's no one right interpretation of a story, just as much as there is no one right way to exist, to live a life, to experience the world. As it has become somewhat apparent by this point, many of my readings of specific albums may seem to fall into bias or pattern that exposes some true aspect of my identity. I worry about the state of society and the declining social contract, so I have a habit of reading into these albums with that frame of reference, finding confirmation or some kinship with what I perceive to be their correct meaning. 
I have gone through depressive periods and harbor feelings of empathy and sympathy for those going through difficult times as well, meaning I find connection to these ideas in songs and albums that have a feeling of loneliness, even where not intended. I have some more progressive political ideals, so I tend to read albums in the same light, even twisting some loose threads in the albums to make a more believable and coherent case for ideas that match my own. This, for all intents and purposes, is not very high up there in the echelons of journalistic integrity, but I am still human, after all. The way I experience the world is inextricably tied to that which has happened to me and the personality I have gained. I am a reflection of my past, and so art, which inherently has a quality which tends to expose inner insight, will tend to show somewhat fragmented or slightly altered versions of myself or my experience back to me. All this to conclude with the idea that these breakdowns are my own opinion and are meant as jumping off points for self-reflection and music discovery. So what exactly is that connecting idea, that key I talked about pre-tangent? Well, in this case, it's looking for unique lyrics or musical sections that carry from one song to another, like the leitmotifs used to represent different characters or mental states in Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here, another album covered right here on the podcast. These can be used to really solidify an overarching narrative in an album. And not only did I manage to find what I was looking for, I managed to find multiple in the same song, Hello Earth. Not just a bizarre song in its own right, with almost half of its over six-minute runtime dedicated to a haunting, completely isolated, and unique choral section, it's also the 11th and longest song on the album. This album is incredibly esoteric, to the point where the idea doesn't solidify with certainty until the second-to-last song on the album. So let's lay out some of these connections here to start building a web of information that we'll then use to condense into a theory behind the storyline, the throughline, if you will. Chronologically, the first connection is from the opening sample sound, a recording of NASA operatives communicating regarding the space shuttle Columbia. A similar type of announcement can be heard in And Dream of Sheep regarding shipping information. There are other strange sample clips pulled in various parts of the album, which we'll cover some of later, but these are the most obvious. The second and third connections are a bit more tenuous, but gain a bit more credence due to the sheer number of them in this song. The second being a line about driving home and you asleep on the seat in verse 1, which has small ties to running up that hill's continual references to running up that road, building, etc. A transportation motif that mirrors an idea of taking someone's place, doing a journey for somebody else. The third connection is the line in the pre-chorus about stepping into the night and looking up at the sky, a subtle reference to Big Sky's bombastic chants about the captivating quality of the sky tying together through an idea of something wondrous, but also distracting. Another big and easily noticeable one is the incessant urging later in the song to get out of the water, mimicking the cries at the end of Waking the Witch, chaining on a thread of panic that carries throughout. The last is merely a set of phrases in German that have to do with sleeping, similar to And Dream of Sheep, but the second to last two references are the most important. In the final pre-chorus, Kate Bush yells murderer, murderer of calm, at some unknown person in a fit of rage that ties back to lines in Mother Stands for Comfort, having a line that states that she, Mother, will hide the murderer. Already some tapestry is being built, but we're missing the middle piece, the one where all of the lines converge. This song has the word cloud bust. Take a listen to this whole section. Cloudbust on its own doesn't really mean anything. I mean, there are some minor references to clouds earlier in the album, like on the big sky with a cloud in the shape of Ireland, but the real standout is, well, the song called Cloudbusting. This is it. This is the final piece we needed. A direct, clear reference to an earlier song. And not only an earlier song, but the one that references Daddy not once, 
but twice, and in a way that makes it sound as though Daddy is gone. Lines like, I won't forget, or comparing him to a yo-yo, something from her childhood, that she buried and forgot. So let's tie these pieces together, loosely, with room to tighten in the future. And by future, I mean like 15 minutes from now. If we sum up the previous connections, we get the following simplified ideas. Disaster, care, distraction, fear, anger, and a joyous memory despite death. Now, I could be completely swinging this out of left field, but this feels a lot like stages of something, possibly even the stages of grief. Now, grief is an incredibly complicated set of emotions, so much so that people have tried to find a way to summarize and conceptualize the recovery process. This theory is labeled the five stages of grief and are presented as a set of time periods following tragedy that someone must or will go through to at least adequately grieve. The stages are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. If you think back to the list from before, following the disaster, we have some parallels. So if we are categorizing these connections in a way that mirrors grief, and all of these connections trace back to songs that then have a thematic connection to Hello Earth, then it may imply that much of the album has something to do with grief, and we can use these found connections to help expand this to include every song and every piece. Grief for a father figure, one that she wishes she could have taken the place of, but one that she feels anger for, ruining the calm world that she had been inhabiting by leaving, that murderer of calm. It's a tenuous and confusing feeling, being furious at something that was likely not controllable or expected, but about someone she is in incredible pain for having lost, to the point where she actively tries to forget or distract from it. And so, ultimately, we can likely say that that's our through line. This is what the main story is about, the already complicated grieving process textured with the difficult-to-parse nature of trying to reconcile that mixed feeling of anger and grief at the unexpected loss of a loved one, in a way that can only ever be done one-sided. Now, we were a bit early on that discovery, but we have a lot of ground to cover, especially if we're going to cover what the album was intended to be about later. So let's start with track one, the one everyone has heard in the past couple of months. An unbelievable marketing resurgence that has seen Kate Bush become the oldest female recording artist to have a number one single, Running Up That Hill, or A Deal With God, depending on who you ask. Already, at the beginning, we get a bit of a tumultuous relationship between Kate and another individual. Now, it would be simple to read this song as a troubled romance song, with the general feel of the lyrics being a team, albeit a strained one, with lines like, It's you and me, and is there so much hate for the ones we love? But nowhere in the song is it explicitly stated that this relationship is or must be between romantic partners. This realistically could be anyone that she has a strong, loving connection to, and if our previous theories are to be believed, then that individual could be her father or father figure. It seems clear that the two are the cause of much of each other's pain here. Take a listen to the beginning of verse 2. Don't want to hurt me, but see how deep the bullet lies, unaware I'm tearing you asunder. Now it's interesting that both characters seem to not notice the hurts they inflict on the other, being something that just seems to happen as a result of their interactions. In some ways, this is another hint to this individual being family, as family has that unique ability to get under each other's skins almost by accident, by the simple fact that they know each other's strengths and subsequent weaknesses better than anyone else, exploiting them even subconsciously. 
However, despite the bickering or fighting or other confrontation, it seems clear that this individual, who I will just refer to as her father from now on for efficiency, is in a bad spot health-wise, sick, injured, or even already dead. In fact, there's a bit more argument for this already being the case later on, but what's clear through the chorus you know, if I only could, I'd make a deal with God and get him to swap her places, is that she wishes she could take this burden from him, to be able to protect him, care for him, or even suffer instead. And ultimately, this disaster, this pain, is what catalyzes our album into what weaves in and out of grief from here on out. Immediately following then, we get the title of the album, Hounds of Love. Now, before we continue, let's talk about that album cover. First of all, it's incredibly modern for an album that came out in the mid-80s. It consists of a small cropped photo of the top half of Kate Bush with a mysteriously provocative look laying on a bed of semi-glossy lavender fabric that seems to be the same material as her dress. Her hair is splayed around her head as if floating in water, and two large brown dogs rest their heads on her. The photo is framed by the album title in the bottom left and her name in the top right, both in a similar lavender color and a simple digital cursive font, all of the elements set on a stark white canvas. It's all incredibly simple, but striking in that simplicity. It's both airy and claustrophobic, natural and staged, innocent and seductive. In some ways, this is a lot like how grief manifests. Sometimes it feels morbidly freeing, other times suffocating. Sometimes it feels human, and other times it feels like the world is a cruel simulation meant to torture you in as consistent and painful a way as possible. But another interpretation of the album art ties into that juxtaposition of innocence and, well, sin. But not so much sin in a traditional sense, but in that which is more similar to stain. The stain of the whirlwind-like but ultimately human emotions of anger and abandonment over death, a fiery blaming of pain and grief upon someone who cannot reconcile it, someone who cannot respond with love, especially if there's a chance it was someone who tended to withhold easy access to their explicit love when they were alive. And this space is where Hounds of Love rests. Much of this song seems to revolve around this idea that Kate is not very good at receiving or existing within love. Even the opening of the song begins with a sample clip that refers to something hidden deep in the forest, dark and foreboding coming out at her like a monster or a predator. It's in the trees. It's coming. Even later, she cries, help me someone, help me please, a true sense of panic ensuing. The choruses all compare love to hounds that are hunting, and she has always been a coward when it comes to these commitments or feelings. But this is even more complicated by the weight of the experience of losing her father, seeping into the idea presented in the song. The grief is starting to infect other parts of her life in the same way that her lack of experience with love, something possibly not taught to her or given to her at a young age by her parents, that lack of experience with knowing how to handle love is taking a toll on her. This infection of grief is most noticeable in the second verse, as she cradles a fox that had been mauled by hounds. just can't deal with this. I'm still afraid to be there. This is such a bizarre verse because it's so wildly different tonally from the rest of the song. It's dark and violent and has almost no connection to the content of the first verse. It's a lapse of control. It seems that in the very subsequent period of time following that loss, she is denying herself the opportunity to interact with that pain. Of course, denial is the first stage of grief, as described before, but as a result of this denial, it's manifesting through an issue, problem in her life, in which her father may be at least indirectly responsible for creating. This threading even connects directly back to the previous song, with her talking about throwing her shoes off and stepping out onto the water, a godlike maneuver, a miracle she had been hoping for in the last song. 
a deal with God to swap places. We even get the remnants of that idea by switching from throwing her shoes off to throwing your shoes off, as if she's confusing herself with the other person, wishing that she could have taken their place so much that the fact that it didn't work almost split her from herself. And in Rebellion, the big sky digs even deeper into denial with a massive distraction song. For a brief moment, we get reference to her father's passing, a sly and subtle nod to the setting of a funeral with they look down at the ground, missing. As most people have experienced, one of the main moments of the funeral proceedings is the lowering of the coffin into the ground, a moment punctuated by grief and by the sheer raw emotion of loss, of missing that individual now more than ever in the brief moment before they're sealed away into the earth. But immediately following this event, Kate specifies that she never goes in now, likely a nod to her attempting to avoid finalizing the process by refusing to visit a place that held memory of him. Instead, as she repeats many, many times in the song, she's just looking at the big sky now. She's letting herself get lost in the clouds, lost in the empty and passing thoughts of finding patterns in them, a lackadaisical activity with no risk and no failure. Now, for the first couple of choruses, they do end with the lines, you never really understood me, you never really tried. These are likely moments of realism rushing in to fight against the distraction, the denial she's trying to emphasize. But just as much as the music gets noisier and more full and chaotic as the song progresses, repeating the words more and more often, we finally reach a point of noise loud enough to mask the process of grief in the fourth chorus. For a moment, through sheer force of might and noise, she has emptied her fears, her thoughts, into this distraction. She has successfully denied that the event, or really anything, ever even happened. But when bottling something up, it's only a matter of time before it overflows or bursts, especially if the amount that has been bottled is ever-expanding, and we start to see the seams, the cracks, in Mother Stands for Comfort. Often, in a loss of a parent situation, the other parent will typically do one of two things. They will either shut down completely, becoming isolated and frustratingly uncommunicative, or they will enter into a hyper-protective state and do everything in their power from allowing their children to feel the same grief that they feel. Both have their flaws, however, as the first obviously sows discord among family members, while the second doesn't allow the child to adequately have the chance to grieve. And here, we see how the second one begins to play out. Kate is pretty apparently in a self-destructive cycle here, with reference to how she is lying about going out with her friends in verse 1, to then noticing that behavior in verse 2. A crack in the distraction from Big Sky, where it breaks the cage and fear escapes and takes possession. She can see the tearing claws of grief threatening to rip her apart, even coming through enough to cause these problematic behaviors, but it seems as though her mother here isn't letting her experience it. Just as much as a mother would protect a murderer or madman, so too here is she justifying and allowing Kate to make bad decisions to allow her to avoid processing the pain. And in cloudbusting, upon realizing this happening, she moves over instead into attempting to skip the process completely and start willing something good happening instead. It's 
clear in this song, at least, that she is beginning to allow herself the space to process as she wakes up crying after dreaming of him and where they were from. She even allows herself the space to talk about him, to allow herself to remember memories, despite them being painful. By comparing him to a yo-yo that glowed in the dark, we get a sense of how she had been treating this process. Her memories with her father were special, but remembering them was hurting her psyche, eating at her from the inside like radioactivity, a poisonous and decaying state that can cause things to glow like the yo-yo. So she buried it away and distracted herself with the big sky. But she is skipping the grieving. She feels the pain, but she's again trying to will it away. Take a listen to the chorus. it happen. She's attempting to just manifest repair, but grief is a hungry, fickle beast, and it will not be tamed by the mere decision to tame it. And so, finally, in And Dream of Sheep, she opens herself up and allows herself to get lost in the ocean of grief, cast away and scattered. I can't be left This is an important first step, but just as much as with cloud busting, she's still trying to mostly just will it away. We're firmly in bargaining territory here as far as stages go. As of right now, she's hoping for mercy and peace, asking the universe to let her be weak, let me sleep and dream of sheep. Now, she does know that she needs to fight, evident through the line, if they find me racing white horses, they'll not take me for a buoy. Essentially, this is evoking the idea of swimming, keeping pushing forward, the wake behind you a frothy mix of white water, like racing white horses. If she keeps pushing, she won't be overlooked for rescue. She'll be able to be saved somehow. But as the song progresses, again, due to her attempting to streamline the process, she grows more and more uncertain and more and more withdrawn. Verse 2 finds her paranoid and frightful, waking to any sound of engines before falling back into that hope for distraction from the friendly voices talking about stupid things. And she is finally lulled back into that state of a calmer, more peaceful, yet dangerous distraction. The voices, their breaths warm and smelling like sleep, but that calm is pulling her deeper and deeper at the end of the song into a tipping point. And that tipping point is under ice. Immediately from the beginning of the song, we're in a completely different tonal space. This is dark evil and foreboding. The deep bass notes rattle the speakers and the strings sound nearly dissonant, like scraping, sending a tingle up the spine. Kate sings in a low rumble for most of the song, dotted with hissing S's, a malevolent presence. This is the grief pulling her under. She hasn't allowed herself the opportunity to experience it, pushing it down or begging for release, even going so far as to pretend that everything was fine and that she is right on the edge of some upswing. The lyrics sing of an ice skater spiraling around a frozen lake by herself, powerful and racing before the ice starts splitting and she finds herself swallowed by that lake. Her pretending that she is fine finally breaks through the cracks from earlier and she screams out for help. Get out of the cold water. It's me. Something. It's me. Someone. Thus begins the depression phase. And if under ice was cracking open everything that she had bottled, then waking the witch is it all spilling out. 
At the beginning, we get a mystical space of multiple voices telling her to wake up. You must wake up. All of these take different tones and forms, like memories or experiences. This menagerie of voices serves two possible purposes here. On one hand, it could be a distortion of different ways her father addressed her or woke her up, even interacting with her in one of the voice sections, talking about a little light. She's in a space where she's now being forced to come to terms with these memories, rather than attempting to store or discard them. On the other hand, this could be the people in her life attempting to wake her from her slump, attempting to shake her loose from this stage of grief. No matter which way it goes, though, these memories or pleas for her to get better aren't able to stop the oncoming tide. The song immediately gets fractured, glitched, and distorted, violently swinging back and forth between impossible-to-understand lyrical onslaughts, devilish commands, and Latin recitation. <laughs> Interestingly, these do have purposes beyond just being chaos. The glitched voice shows her damaged psyche, this rush of thoughts and feelings she has to deal with all at once. The devilish words call out from the grave, mixed in with references to roses and posies, flowers used for love and death. This all culminating in a supernatural requirement for her to face the fact that her father is dead, confess how she feels. And finally, the Latin all references prayer or calling out to outside forces, her mind attempting to come to term with what's happening, the possession of grief. In the end of the song, she is condemned by her own mind, falling deeper and deeper into the fracture. In the grips of a fragmenting mind, then, we find ourselves in a moment of magical realism in watching you without me. This starts a two-song Ghosts of Christmas Past and Future adjacent deal where Kate is experiencing what it's like to watch someone else grieve your loss without the opportunity to comfort them and then actively interacting with herself to find a way forward. As noted then, this song finds Kate in an imagined setting, one where she is a ghost watching someone else be without her. She feels anguish and fear that grows over the song at the fact that they aren't aware of her presence, that she's not able to tell them that she's there. It begins with simple statements like, you can't hear me. The individual seems to not even know at this moment that she's gone, watching the clock hand move slowly. I should have been home hours ago. In this moment, she realizes the feeling of dread fall over the scene. The fact that life has gone somewhere unexpectedly and there will be no closure. No time to explain. This realization heightens her fear and it grows into a fever pitch, begging them to see her and notice her, but reconfirming to herself in the midst that this is futile. <laughs> You can't hear me. You won't hear me leaving. For the first time, she's starting to come to terms with her lack of closure and her anger and fear at the loss created uncontrollably by her father. And this manifestation of understanding and encountering and facing grief is personified and introduced to her in Jig of Life. The sound of this song is so surprising. It's almost uplifting. It's fast. It's almost joyful, despite the last three incredibly violent and experimental songs. The sound of Ireland is coming through here. Kate herself is part Irish, so the song acts as a bit of a homecoming. It's a bit of a climax. 
In the opening, Kate refers to this reflection of herself as an old lady, but that's a bit misleading. Through the rest of the song, we hear a constant pleading from this aged mirror version to not say goodbye to my part of your life. Come on and let me live. One of the major aspects of life that has a tremendous and otherworldly power to age someone is stress or trauma. That's why we see presidents age something like 20 years in their four-year terms. It's a stressful job. So rather than being old, it's possible that this version of herself merely looks old, has merely gone through a lot. In this reading, we can then understand that her pleas to let her live, to not cast her aside, are attempts to encourage Kate to actually allow herself to feel the trauma, to experience the grief, and to find a way to work through it. The mirror version even goes on to say, This moment of time, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. For a period of time, she isn't going to feel like herself. She's going to be battered and bruised. But on the other side, after these affirmations, we finally get some resolution. She begins putting herself back together. She begins organizing her thoughts and finding a way to work through them. I put this moment here. I put this moment here. I put this moment over here. I put this moment here. And in this beginning of healing, we get an interesting poetry rap-like section at the end of the song of a male voice talking esoterically about life and afterlife and memory and time, a deep philosophical undertaking of her mind through her memory of him now working together, trying to find a way to rationalize all of everything that's happened. And she comes out the other side new. The world begins to reform around her and she enters into a new version of herself and a new world without her father in Hello Earth. Nothing is fully healed, however, as we've talked about previously with the song. She calls back to nearly every other song here, taking stock of where she was, what happened, and now where she is and is heading. She is not totally cured, not totally whole. She still feels moments of fear and anger, lines like murderer of calm, screaming out across the void again, furious that he would leave her, shouts to get out of the water, act as siren calls to prevent her from falling back into the depression. But the chaos is softening. We are no longer in the same space as Waking the Witch. We are no longer searching for distraction. Instead, we are in an uneasy calm, a spacious place of peace, and yet still a foreboding sense of some greater force, like the inside of a church. And so we exist for nearly half the song, the Gregorian singing of a chorus of men echoing into our ears. The moment fades softly and Kate sings something in German, a line that tells of light hidden far in the depths, a hope that is hiding at our darkest points. And we use this hope, this uneasy sense of security, to move forward into the morning fog. breaking out of the depression stage, breaking that foggy otherworldly feeling and entering into a state of acceptance. We know that it's never permanent and never complete, but it's there. As we've been talking about before, this whole process has been about allowing herself to grieve, allowing herself to feel. And so the second line of this song has her begin to bleed, begin to breathe. There is coexistence in pain and life, the ability to understand that not everything will be great, but there is some resilience to be found in the midst of it. As the old Buddhist tenement typically is understood, life is suffering, but life is also love and connection. In this song, she still has moments of falling, moments of doubt and grief, but she has finally forgiven her father. That irrational and impossible to understand anger over something not within the realm of possibility to control, or prevent. And through this forgiveness, she finds a newfound appreciation for those who are alive. 
pledging to tell them all how much she loves them while she has the opportunity to, not leaving to chance that she'll miss out on professing that and having to suffer through the same chaotic space that she just had. And with this song, a much brighter and more fulfilling space, the album ends. The darkness has been left behind, the chaos mostly sorted. There's a sense of peace and closure that hangs over the end of the album, one that feels all the more cathartic due to the trials that the main character had undergone over the course of the album. Grief itself is a process that no one ever wants, but will always be present. Nearly everyone in the world will have to experience loss in some way or another, and so this album attempts to present a cautionary tale in trying to avoid processing it when the time comes. By bottling our emotions up, by preventing ourselves from feeling the way we feel, and allowing ourselves the space to explore why we feel the way we do and what we can learn from it, we expose ourselves to the risk of it all coming flooding around us at once. A feeling not unlike drowning, trapped under the weight of the pressures of the world. And beyond this, the album explores what it means to come to grips with that loss, with the irrational anger and feeling of abandonment that sours our past. Why did they leave us? How could they have done this? And finally learning that people are not wrong for feeling this way. It's a natural part of loss. And our only salve is to learn how to manage and accept our feelings of loss. And to lean on and love those that are still with us. Because in some ways, knowing you matter to somebody and knowing they matter to you, loving outwardly and openly is a pretty good way to live a fulfilled life. Stick around after the break as we go over what the second half of the album is actually about. Christian here. Yes, it's still through line. You haven't been bamboozled, but where's the little sound thingy? Where's the conversation, the juicy dialogue? Don't worry, I have it queued up, my fingers hovering over the button, or, well, my cursor is ready to drag it in when I edit this together later. But before all of the conversing hullabaloo, I finally got a taste of every podcaster's greatest opportunity. A promo code! And also, I guess, the ability to talk about a product they're actually excited about. Or, well, it's both a service and a product. One of the biggest problems that I have with putting together this whole throughline package is knowing how to give the people what they want. Which musicians to cover, how funny I should be, if I should start a TikTok. But one thing that the people often want from a business or project or property they're passionate about is merch. And what better way to personalize your merch than with stickers? Sticker Mountain is an online experience that is dedicated to delivering you the best stickers and labels so that you can sell your products, grow your business, and focus on your passions. Simple interactive interfaces, competitive prices, and a support team that has the same passion and attention to detail as if they were right down the road from you come together into a package that's damn near impossible to beat. With tons of material options and bulk discounts on bigger orders, it's something that even I can't resist, and frankly, I'm a bit of an analysis nerd if you couldn't tell yet. Their color matching is a highlight and something they pride themselves on, and for good reason. At Sticker Mountain, you'll find everything you need to get the product labels, merch stickers, and more onto your booths, into your stores, and into the hands of your customers. And by listening to this podcast, you've unlocked a special reward. For a limited time, you can use the code THROUGHLINE2022, all lowercase, to get 10% off your next order at StickerMountain.com. Make the most of it. Stock up. I can personally attest to the quality and care that goes into each order, and I'm confident you'll be excited you looked them up too. Go see what they have at StickerMountain.com and use the code THROUGHLINE2022 for that lovely, lovely discount. Now, for all y'all that stuck around, time to hit that funny little sound button. Hey everyone, welcome back to Throughline. We just got done talking about what I think the album is about, so now it's time to talk about what the album is actually about. 
at least according to the songwriter Kate Bush. It's time to do the concept now that the reconcept's done. Time to tell the truth and not a bunch of dirty, dirty lies. Now, for the most part, it's really only the last seven songs on this album that are truly a concept. All of the other songs have a meaning, of course, just as much as any song does, but only the last seven are stated to be connected. The goddamn thing even has a name, the Ninth Wave. Now, this idea is already kind of interesting because this already starts to evoke a connection to death with a subtle nod toward the old Christian idea of the nine layers of hell. In some ways, this is an incredibly dark and fearful stage to set, and the story of the mini-album takes on a similar light. The story revolves around a girl lost out in a sea with nothing but a life jacket that holds a little light. The little light referenced multiple times in the story. In her traumatic situation, she struggles to hold on to consciousness, and in this blurring between being awake and passing out, she is visited by visions that try to coax her into fighting for her life. So let's go over the story that's actually being told in this section, the way that Kate portrays this event as told through these seven songs. And we're going to go song by song in order to get a better grasp of what's going on. We enter the scene kind of in media res. We're already in the stage in And Dream of Sheep where she's in the water. And we can tell that by the first few lines in verse one, where she talks about if they see me racing white horses, they won't fool me for a buoy. Essentially, she's hoping that if she stays awake, if she manages to signal for help, then she's not going to miss her chance to be saved. But at this point, she's already struggling with having to come to terms with the dangerous situation she's in and attempting to keep herself awake for fear that she'll drown if she falls asleep. It's a really tempting offer to fall asleep, to not have to constantly fight, and she wants to be weak, but she actively keeps trying to go against that. Unfortunately... These distractions, these imaginations that she's pulling, these wishes to just listen to a radio and not have to worry about it, hear these voices, lull her into that sleep. And in Under Ice, she immediately gets a nightmare about the situation that she's in. At this point, the album takes on kind of an interesting ghosts of the past, present, and future thing, which is really funny considering I brought that up for two of the songs in this section, but in a completely different way. Here, we're exploring the past. We're exploring what led her to this experience, at least a dramatization or a metaphorical kind of allegorical change. She's imagining herself skating on the ice. Everything's going fine in her life before it starts to crack and split and pull her under. And she ends the nightmare with realizing that she is in this danger. She's underneath the ice. She was pulled under. She's no longer safe. And so we go into Waking the Witch. She is asleep at this point. And so the beginning of the song, instead of being memories, instead of being attempts for her mind to recontextualize the situation, these people calling out for her to wake up is her mind desperately trying to force her to not stay asleep and risk drowning. She even has a moment where one of these voices interacts with her directly talking about the little light, saying, don't you see that? Go towards that. The little light being her light on her life jacket. But her mind begins to start fracturing. So we start to get these other voices, her glitched, frantic voice trying to understand what's going on, almost sounding as if she's trying to spit out words as she's drowning. Mixed in with references to posies, which are omens of death, and a dark, demonic voice telling her to essentially come and die, confess her sins for she is not going to survive. The Latin phrases that we talked about before then evoke this sense of prayer, hoping for something else, but some of them also evoke hopes for deals with demons or devils in order to save herself. She's becoming more and more desperate. The end of the song has to do with essentially her mind committing herself to a witch hunt, 
and getting pulled even deeper and deeper into this dangerous position. Now, the whole conversation on the witch hunt is something else that's interesting to talk about because Kate Bush has gone on record numerous times to say, and this is not like anything that's incredibly surprising, this is a take that absolutely makes sense, that the witch hunts were in general pretty misogynistic. And so by including this into this section, we get an interesting dialogue of mixing this horrible practice that took place a long time ago with this scene of this girl who's trapped out in the sea by herself on the risk of death, completely helpless. And so there's a conversation that then springs up out of this about not leaving women behind, about not letting them fall into these arguably preventable situations. And it goes even further to comment about how a lot of women in the music industry, at least at this time especially, were kind of in the midst of having to fend for themselves in a way. It was a male-dominated industry, the music industry before, still partly male-dominated, even with pop singers being at the forefront and a lot of those pop singers being female. There's a general sense among a lot of people, wrongfully so, that female and singers, female artists, in general, especially female comedians, don't have as much to say as male artists, which is absolutely not true. So we get a good mixture of different ideas stemming from this point, but the main idea is that this character is in a state where even her mind is beginning to give up on her. And so then we go from this perspective into the present where she has a full panicked out-of-body experience of witnessing someone who doesn't know she's in this predicament and her futile attempt to attract their attention and save her. And it becomes more and more panicked as she realizes that there's nothing that she can do, there's nothing that she can say that's going to get them to come find her. Even though she knows that that person is worried about her, checking the time, she should have been home hours ago. But all of this doesn't necessarily imply that they know that something has happened. So in this more panicked state, again, her mind is in this trying to rescue her by saying, people aren't looking for you yet, you need to keep fighting. And that culminates even further in Jig of Life, where she gets a vision of her future self wishing her to fight for survival, to allow this version of herself to happen, to allow herself the chance to experience what it's like to grow old. She's not meant to die here, is she? There's no way. It's written in her fate, on her hands, that she should grow old. So we get elements of the fear of the event mixed in with her brain in a strange effort to keep her safe, but also worried that it's not going to work. This fighting between giving up and continuing on. And in Hello Earth, in some ways, it's kind of a mixing of everything. But it is also a moment of peace. And this is where interpretations kind of start to diverge. So Kate Bush has said that this is meant to be like a mirror. The stars shining in the sky in the same way that it would look if you were in space looking down at the ocean and seeing those same stars reflected. You could witness the disasters from afar, but never interfere or warn them. This has some connections to herself, the main character fantasizing about a way to go back and warn herself before disaster, but ultimately learning that this is a fruitless fantasy. So we get this element of peace on one end, this element of trying to recontextualize the position that they're in. But in a different way, the other branching path that this can take is that this becomes sort of like a lullaby for the earth as a mask for beginning to accept their demise. If you're looking at the earth from far away, everything looks incredibly small and even more so small if you're thinking about the fact that she's just one person hidden in a massive sea. Looking at it from that point, how is it possible that you could ever be saved? Now, Morning Fog sees this character having survived the night, but still lost at sea. Kate Bush has said that this song is meant to be her being rescued and vowing to live a life changed, even though it doesn't necessarily say she's being saved. Kate Bush says that she's rescued. A happy note. A sense of closure. But a lot of fans instead believe that this song and the last are proof of the main character dying and instead experiencing some form of rebirth or reincarnation, a vow to live a more loving and better life on this next try. 
So in general, this is what this section of the album is about. It's a concept about a woman lost at sea and on the brink of drowning, her mind attempting to find a way to keep her fighting until she's ultimately rescued or ultimately dies. Now, there's not a whole lot more that's been said about the album at this point. There haven't been a lot of theories as to what this is trying to say. Is it about being a woman in a male-dominated industry? Or is it about pushing through odds that seem insurmountable? Or is it about our place in the world and how small we are and how important it is to take advantage of the opportunities that we have? No one seems to have a pretty definitive answer on this, but it's worth noting that this story was written without that intention. This story was written without the purpose of being dark or being something bigger and more easily understood. And as a result, we are able to ascertain our own things from the story. We're able to pull out our own ideas. I'm able to find a story of grief. Somebody else might be able to find another story. One of the most clever things about art, one of the most clever things about music, about books, about movies, is that in their totality, because of how textured we are as people, we are able to find something important to us within the music. We're able to find a meaning that might not otherwise exist through the sheer nature of storytelling. As I've talked about numerous times on this podcast, humanity has survived for so long because we're so good at telling each other's stories and so good at learning things, finding insight in ourselves through the different experiences and the different things that we learn. For example, a review by Pitchfork, who gave it 10 points out of 10 points, finishes their review with saying it was a response perhaps to the age-old quandary of commanding respect as a woman in an overwhelmingly masculine field. Bush's navigation of this minefield was as natural as it was ingenious. She became the most musically serious and yet outwardly whimsical star of her time. She held on to her bucolic childhood and sustained her family's support, feeding the wonder that's never left her. Her subsequent records couldn't surpass Hounds of Love's perfect marriage of technique and exploration, but never has she made a false one. She's like the glissando of Hello Earth that rises up and plummets down almost simultaneously. Bush retained the strength to ride fame's waves because she has always known exactly what she was, simply and quite complicatedly herself. So they're reading almost a mixture of seriousness and whimsicality, something that has purpose but also doesn't necessarily need to say anything and could just be a good story. And they also talk about being a woman in an overly masculine field. So they're exploring and expanding and pulling information out of the story that they see and finding purpose in that. And one of the most important aspects of this is the fact that Kate Bush for all intents and purposes, was herself and is herself completely from the beginning to the end. And this is more important than may be easily understood because one of the other things that we've talked about on this podcast a few times is the fact that music and stories and ideas do not have to be dark or come from a dark place in order to be worthwhile, in order to be sufficient in terms of giving us something important to look at. In fact, Kate has specifically gone on record in an interview with Richard Skinner in 1992 saying, I've never been so pleased to finish anything in my life. There were times when I never thought it'd be finished. It was just such a lot of work. All of it was so much work, you know, the lyrics trying to piece the thing together. But I did love it. I did enjoy it. And everyone that worked on the album was wonderful. And it was really, in some ways, I think the happiest I've been when I've been writing and making an album. And I know there's a bit theory that goes around that you must suffer for your art. You know it's not real art unless you suffer. And I don't believe this, because I think in some ways this is the most complete work that I've done. In some ways it is the best, and I was the happiest I've been compared to making other albums. This is widely regarded to be Kate Bush's best album, and she did it in the state of her life where she was the happiest. This podcast is one of the coolest things that I've ever done, and I want to keep doing it. And being able to explore musical and literary ideas through this medium has given me a massive amount of joy. 
being able to present these ideas, to explore this world, to explore our world through the lens of music is something that I appreciate that I'm able to do. And I'm doing it not from a point of pain or not from a point darkness. I'm fortunate to be able to do that. Not all artists are able to. But true art, not saying that the podcast is art, but true art and true passion is not inextricably tied to suffering. And I think an important shift in our mind needs to happen in order to get to a better state in society where pain is not required for growth, where suffering is not required to know how life works. And hopefully, knowing the story of this album and knowing the story of how it was made and what its purpose is and the purposes that I was able to find and the stories that were told as a result gives some hope that maybe life in general doesn't need to just be suffering. And with that, I'll say that that's probably a good place to stop this episode. Please reach out if you have any questions about future episodes, if you have any suggestions for future episodes, if you have any comments about this episode or previous episodes on all of our social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I check it all the time. So if you have something you want to say, let me know and maybe we'll be able to talk about it in the future. But for now, that will be the end of this episode of Throughline with Kate Bush's Hounds of Love. And remember, everyone, pain is not a requirement for growth. Thanks for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.